Good afternoon and welcome to Deep in History. This is Marcus Grodi, Monsignor Jeffrey Steenson. Hello, Monsignor. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing fine. Doing fine. I'm assuming you're in a snowy place just like I am. Yeah, we've got winter here. It's it's serious down here. All right. Here. Well, yeah. I, yeah. it's good that we are able to join through the, the internet to, to do our continued discussion of Irenaeus's uh, wonderful book, Against Heresies. And uh, those of you watching us, following us long, thank you for that. I really do thank you for that. We'd love to know your comments on that. We've had uh, uh, some lately that have been really encouraging. And I apologize, sometimes our, our discussions go longer than we anticipate, but we always assume that if you're getting a little tired of us, you can always pause us for a while or come back to it. Uh, I do want to uh, mention that uh, the staff are doing some neat upgrades with our online videos, connecting them to the online community of the Coming Home Network. So if you go to chnetwork.org, if you're not already there, you can you can see online community, you can become a part of that. And then as a part of the community, you can connect to resources and there's all the different programs that we have. And uh, we hope that that would make it even more available to so many, especially those of you on the journey. So now, Monsignor, we're going to look today, our goal is to complete, we're in book four, chapters mm -hmm. 34 through 37. And that'll take us from pages 414 through 436. And, you know, we're kind of, trying to force ourselves to do this almost as if we were teaching a class so that we, we just can't cover every little quote that's in the section. We're assuming those of you listening are actually reading this yourself. But uh, as we approach this, this section, it seemed to me, Monsignor, that chapters 34 and 35, that as we approach this book now, you know, 1825 or so years later, that we can fairly quickly go through 34 and 35 and not get into the details because to a certain extent what Irenaeus is addressing in these books, these chapters, is a continuation of what he's been doing since the beginning. So we'll go through those fairly quickly. I would say chapter 36 in many ways is a continuation of that same argument, but maybe from a different angle. As, you know, the, through the parables of Christ. But what I'd like us to mostly focus on is chapter 37 today, because I, I truly believe 37 is profound and important, if you will, as a road sign along the history of salvation history in terms of the life of the church. And it's, if you take the writings of the early church fathers serious at all, and seeing Irenaeus for who he was, Irenaeus being a disciple of Polycarp, Polycarp being a disciple of John. And so we see the direct transmission of 
the all-important apostolic deposit of faith. And we recognize in the eyes of Irenaeus um, that the infallibility of the church, as he understands it, and I might be wrong in this, Monsignor, but his understanding of the infallibility of the church, and that's the church in Rome, its infallibility becomes not so much in itself, but that the church is the guardian of that deposit of faith. And so the reason all the churches are to be in union with Rome is because Rome was established by the illustrious apostles Peter and Paul. So that's why we go to that church, because it is preserving that infallible truth that the apostles received from Jesus. Now, the reason I mention that is that we think later in the in the Reformation, we see Luther writing an entire book on the bondage of the will, and we see Calvin and the Reformers in, in, in that side of the Reformation really buying in the idea of the uh, uh, in the bondage of the will, that we don't have free will, emphasizing predestination and sovereignty of God. And and I want to say, folks, it's almost as if they skipped over chapter book 4, chapter 37 of Irenaeus. I'd love to go back to the Calvin's Institutes or Luther's book to see, does he mention this at all? Because what Irenaeus talks about in chapter 37 is, is really important. Uh, and I think for us today, Monsignor, would, would you agree, my friend? Oh, I, I agree very much so, yeah. So, well, why don't we start back, and I'd like to pass okay. it over to you, Monsignor. Let's let's have a bit of a summary of chapters 34 and 35. Right, okay. Well, um, what St. Irenaeus is doing here, again, is he's we meet up with um, his arguments against his two principal opponents, um, the Marcionites and the Valentinians. Um, and and in these two chapters, uh, he especially focuses in on how to interpret what Jesus himself has been teaching, how Jesus uses the Old Testament. Um, in the next chapter, in uh, 36, we'll look at how Jesus uses the parables. But but um, it is it is a fascinating. I found it, those these two chapters really interesting yep. in terms of how. Can I put it this way, Marcus? Um, Irenaeus was dealing with the uh, kind of independent church movements. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, he talks about how uh, these guys are establishing their churches because they're either egomaniacs or, or they're just looking for getting more money or something like that. But, uh, you know... I maybe we both watched a film last night um, on Amazon Prime called "The Submergent Church." The submerging church. Submerging church, yeah. Yeah. And um, there were a lot of echoes with the, the guy that was doing the presentation. Sounded like he'd read Irenaeus. Yeah. Um, somewhat. Right and. Yeah. I, I want to be a caution here. Monsignor, you and I just listened to that documentary last night. Uh, I think you said you still got to finish it. I listened to it late yeah. into the evening. It's a two-hour-plus. Um, so we want to be careful to, to not give a full endorsement to the 
Well, don't want to be negative about it, but but just be careful about that. Or uh, you know, yeah. it was done by one Protestant pastor, and I think what he is revealing is quite important. And he's re revealing the problems of this of one of these new movements in Christianity called the emerging church movement. Uh, um, it's connected with the seeker churches, uh, the emerging churches, um, and the um, purpose-driven purpose-driven yeah. churches. And these are, if you will modern technical terms for specific church movements that are the mega churches that you see represented on television, on the internet, and you see them all over. And the reason we mention this here, we're not going to go into that per se, I don't think, though the, the author yeah. of this documentary is pointing out that these independent church movements today and he's rightfully calling them neo-Gnosticism because many of them are repeating the very exact mistakes that Irenaeus was fighting against back 1,825 years ago or so. Um, <clears throat> and so on the one hand, that's why it, it's important to hear what Irenaeus is saying. It's the same devil. It's the same whisper of the enemy out there encouraging people to break free from the apostolic deposit that was given by Christ to his apostles as the foundation for our truth, that the church was established to preserve and protect. But once you break free from that, then the whisper can get you to buy in something that's very close and you don't realize how inaccurate it is until you've been taken down a path. And Monsignor, the, the reason I mentioned how yeah. significant this was, this documentary was for me to hear, because he's now pointing out in, I forget when he did the documentary, it's within the last... It was 2017, maybe, I think okay, it was. Okay, so, so within the last yeah. five years, yeah. he's pointing out where some of these leaders of this movement are today, and a couple of them that he m mentions were writers and leaders that I liked back in 1980, 81 yeah. and 82, 40 years ago or so, right? Is that what I'm right? You know, that when I was in seminary, these guys were writers and speakers and in influencers and so a lot of my seminary classmates like these guys, and they've gone off. They were all Protestants then, and they've gone off into the churches, and they, these are the pastors that are doing these churches that are uh, like adult youth groups mm -hmm. with, with lots of music and, and coffee and, and all of that. It's just kind of gone, non-traditional. And when we heard these speakers back in the late, 70s and early 80s, they seemed completely within the bounds of evangelical Protestantism. But it's changed in 30 or 40 years. And a lot of them have gone off on their own. And there's a quote from Irenaeus I wish I could find at this moment, when he says that each of these leaders 
feels the pressure to be different than his teacher. Remember that, Monsignor? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Early We've on. we up with that a couple of times, yeah. Got to be more yeah. intelligent than their teacher. They've got to be more inspired than their teacher. Got a bigger, you know, and that's what's happening today. That's what's happening today. Yeah, no, exactly. So, um, you know, as again, we don't want to spend a lot of time on these chapters. So I just, again, so everybody keeps in mind what these two Gnostic ideas were. The, the Marcionites want to reject the God of the Old Testament. Jesus came to overthrow the God of the Old Testament is basically their idea. And, and his argument against the Gnostics is that, um, against these Marcionites, is that uh, how, how otherwise could you explain how Jesus uses scripture, uses the Old Testament scriptures and claims them for his own? Um, it, it makes no sense. He can't be both, um, he cannot see the God of the Old Testament as enemy if, he accepts um, his prophets and the things that are said, and he develops them. The um, the, the Valentinians, of course, they're the uh, they're the more sophisticated group. They're the ones that came, especially out of Egypt, out of northern Egypt, Alexandria, and they um, believed that uh, the world was created, or the world is a product of many different emissions, and yeah. um, depends on who, which one you're from. And and his his point is um, to, against them. You know, he says it's just simply irrational that we would take the one scripture and then assign it to different entities or or emanations. Um, makes no sense at all. What what I like there was one text though that I thought it would be fun just to look at in the middle of page four hundred fourteen, section one. Chapter 34. Yes. Um, so, um, he, well, he in the beginning of, se of section one, he encourages them to read the Gospels more carefully. Um, and you'll find that, that in the prophets, um, all of this of, that will happen to Christ has been foretold. But then I like what comes next. But if this thought occurs to you, to say, what then hath the Lord's coming brought us? Know ye that he brought all, all newness, in that he brought himself, who had been foretold. Um, he brought us all newness, he brought us all joy, he brought us liberty. Um, that chapter, that paragraph uh, touches all three of those subjects. And it was, I just thought it was a wonderful moment here. I when I read it, I I was just yeah. I remember just a saying a prayer of thanks that I'm a Christian. Um, these wonderful gifts that the Lord brought us, and they're they're ours. They're gifts from Him to us. Um, so it's I just see here a joyful Irenaeus, um, not a grumpy Irenaeus at this point. So. Um, the other thing we were going to mention, I think, was um, I just to jump oh, over well, this as quickly. Let me jump oh, in if I say yeah. something about that, because yeah. when I think about the flaws of the Gnostics, Marcionites and the Valentinians, to me, the flaw is 
in my mind, not really hearing Scripture. That's really the flaw. And yeah. it reminds me, there's a, there's, a, there's a place in Dickens's Christmas Carol where Ebenezer Scrooge, as a young man, has to stay every winter at the school by himself. You know, all the other classmates go home and he's at. And why is it? Because his dad is bad. His dad makes him stay there. He's got a bad dad. So there he is. And then there's that scene where it's going to be another Christmas and he's by himself. And all of a sudden his sister shows up and says, you can come home. Dad is so much nicer these days. Okay. So you got a bad dad and a good dad. Is it the same dad? So Marcion looks at, you got a bad God, angry, wrathful God. Mm-hmm. And then we have this new God that sent us Jesus. Must be a different God. Valentinian, you know, he sees it too. So he comes up with an explanation. Well, there's these whole layers of gods. They miss the point. Often the reason a father is wrathful is because he's got a disobedient son. The reason that God is wrathful in the Old Testament, if you look at every single case, it's because as a, a father, of, of the righteous father of who's known by a steadfast love all the way through the Bible, he's a merciful father. We see it over and over and over again how God is merciful. When he was just a gazillion times to say, I've had it with these people. They're disobedient. Their hearts are, are hard. So the wrathfulness of God in the Old Testament is always justified because of the disobedience of the people. Marcion missed that. It's the same loving God. And now in the New Testament, it's the same loving, merciful just God. We see it in the writings of Christ. I mean, excuse me, the teachings of Christ, the writings of the New Testament. We are called to abide in Christ, in obedience. And we're going to see that in chapter 37, when Irenaeus says, yeah. it's the same both and. But we have the freedom to respond. God's not going to push, pull, or prod. And he's going to respond. Those who believe are going to spend eternity with him, and those that don't, He's going to come across kind of wrathful, but don't blame him. In fact, there's a place in the Old Testament where Moses kind of blows it, where in Deuteronomy, we know that the reason that Moses isn't going to be allowed in the promised land because Moses screwed up. Well, then in Deuteronomy, when Moses is talking to the people, he's, Moses says, and I'm not going to be able to go into the promised land because of what you people did. And then later at the end of Deuteronomy, God corrects him and says, uh, Moses, you're not going to the promised land because of what you did. And so it gets back to the fact of we're called, which is why Monsignor priests have been given the great gift of confession, so that we can recognize our fault, my fault, mea culpa, so that our loving, just, righteous Father can be free to respond to us in love. And it requires our turning back to him. That was the need of the Old Testament.
And that's what we live in in the new. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to wax. Yeah, but no, to me, Marcy and Marcy and Valentinian yeah. missed the whole thing. Um, just I thought you know for just as a wonderful illustration of how different these guys are. Um, on page four nineteen, section three of uh, chapter thirty five. Here, how does? Can I just read a couple of sentences here? Please, yes, yes, yes. Okay, so it's on 419, section 3. And how could the offspring of that mother of theirs know those mysteries which were within the pleroma and give an account of them? For the mother, when she produced the aforesaid offspring, was outside of the pleroma. And all that is so, they say, is without knowledge. That is, it is ignorance. How then could that offspring, which from its conception was ignorance, proclaim knowledge? Or how did that mother know the mysteries which appertain to the Pleroma, being as she was without form or figure, cast out as an abortion, and there constructed and shaped and forbidden by Horus to enter in, and even to the end abiding within abiding without the pleroma, that is, without knowledge. Um, so the ar argument here, um, obviously we see these Gnostics don't have anything to say about the incarnation because Jesus' mother is not Mary. Jesus' mother is this mysterious figure that's an offspring from uh, um, one of the eons and got trapped down here and imprisoned by her relative Yahweh and um, and so and of course she's the mother of the Gnostics and the mother of Christ and and they're pointing out you know um, how if she's if she how can they it just doesn't make any sense that they, they can um, go on and on about um, proclaiming knowledge since they're they're children of this eon of ignorance, if you will, you know. Um, so it's just, I just thought that's, for a, a Catholic, that really jumps out at you. Yep. There is no mother of God that, as we know it in Gnosticism. That the mother of God is not Mary of, of Nazareth. <laughs> so... Um. So in those two chapters, then, I just sum it up. You know, basically, Irenaeus is arguing uh, from the way that Christ himself read the scriptures. And he's assuming there's a common ground between the Gnostics and himself here because, you know, both, of, both the Gnostics and the Catholic Church claim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Um, but but the, then... He points out, you know, um, how do you explain the way Jesus used Scripture? If, yeah. I mean, why it doesn't, doesn't make any sense that he would have taken it from darkness and from evil, and um, he should have had his own prophets. You know, basically, it's basically his art. It's yeah. interesting that you say it that way because, again, thinking about that documentary, you and I both, yeah, that this this modern uh, evangelical. Baptist. I'm assuming he's Baptist. I, I I should take that back. I can't remember what his particular theology was, uh, but he's an evangelical, pointing out the flaws of this emergent group. 
he just described it the way you just did, because these leaders of these new churches have a different understanding of Christ, a different understanding of the Trinity, a different understanding of salvation, of justification. And he points that out. And every time he's going back to the scriptures and saying, how can they say this, but ignore this in the scriptures? And that's his point. I mean, the, again, the, the author of the documentary is an is a, a pro, evangelical Protestant, so for him the Bible alone is, is the source. But to a certain extent, we would be on the same page with him as Catholics because of the, we recognize the authority of Scripture. We would disagree with him because there's some aspects of tradition he doesn't go with. But he's pointing out the exact same thing Irenaeus is, yeah. just in the same yeah. logic you were just saying. You're saying this, but that doesn't make sense given— Scripture. Now, I would like us, Monsignor, before we go on to 36, yeah, uh-huh. to look at the end of 35. Yeah, I, that was the other thing I had. Okay. Okay, good. Very good. Um, very good. Uh, be, so that would be, let's see, where are we here? Bottom of page, um, page 420. 420. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, section 4. Yeah, I would begin focusing on... Um, I mean, we could go through all of section four, but it seems to me it begins at the bottom of page 420. And let me read that, Monsignor. I'm going to read that whole first paragraph, and then I'll let you jump in here. Because, folks, I believe that when I read this, we need to be hearing the history of, of the church and the divisions and the schismatic movements and heretical movements and all the stuff we see today, listen to what Irenaeus was saying about the schismatic and heretics of his day. He said, so many diversities are there amongst them concerning one and the same thing, maintaining as they do different meanings for the same scriptures. And at the reading of one, And the same passage, they all contract their eyebrows and shake their heads and say that they themselves indeed perfectly comprehend the passage in its exceeding depth, but that all cannot receive the greatness of the meaning therein contained. And therefore, that silence is a main point with the wise, it being meet that the Siege who is above should be delineated by the silence which is among them. And so they go their ways, all of them, and whatever their number, so many opinions do they take with them on one and the same subject, they bear about with them unseen their own sharp thoughts. Yeah, I Well, it's interesting how I think if I read that, if I understood what St. Irenaeus is saying here, is they have all these um, different interpretations of what a passage of scripture means, but at some point they want to say, they want to be silent about it um, because it's for the elect. So it's like they deny um, reason, you know, that that we can have a rational discourse about something. Because that's kind of what that next paragraph, that's yeah. sort of the point he's making there, isn't it? That um, if if they can ever, he's saying, if those Gnostics can ever agree among themselves, um, 
then maybe we can begin to have a conversation with them about what the church teaches. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to read um, that next yeah. paragraph in a yeah. second, but I, I want that first yeah. thing reminds me to a certain extent of a layer of clericalism. Yeah, oh, fair enough, yeah. In other words, you know, there's a superior understanding of truth. Right. And the silence that comes when certain opinions are out there and they're conflicting or whatever, but the silence is, excuse me, uh, I understand this. Uh, and yes, but he's saying that so many diversities are there on the same exact passages. Uh huh. I mean, that's the world today. That's that's Christendom today. And I'm not honestly just pointing a finger outside the Catholic Church. I mean, within Catholicism today, exacerbated by this internet that I'm talking over right now, there are so many interpretations of the same things. And sometimes you can't critique them. And that's what gets into the silence thing. They're beyond critique. Beyond critique. Maybe because of position or because of their following. They have so many people on yeah. Twitter that, that rises them up to the top or whatever. And of course, now we have the problem today with our whole world has, has sold its soul to the internet that uh, we are at the mercy of the cancel culture who, if they don't like what we're saying, we're done. I just saw notice this morning about a, a very large Catholic pro-life group that has a lot of information on YouTube, and all of a sudden now it's gone. And it's there's another kind of silence, because a certain group assumes they know it better. Their diverse views are more true than our views. Um, I mean, it's just amazing, almost sad how parallel it is to everything that Irenaeus was trying to deal with in his day, 1800 or so years ago. Let me read that next paragraph, Monsignor. And again, I'd like you to... So, to, so that, just to sum up what you said then, it, it's the misuse of, it's the abuse of power in, in that's fascinating. Yeah, well, and they had their yeah. own different powers. You know, that's why Irenaeus was trying yeah. to point out that these groups had gained power and people were trusting them. Because I'm pretty sure Marcion and both Valentinus at one time were leaders in the church. They're baptized Christians. I don't know yeah. if they're bishops. I can't remember if Marcion or Valentinus were bishops. But but some of these Nazis were bishops, at least. I can't remember at this moment. Uh but let me read this next paragraph, Monsignor, then I'll pass it to you for a reflection. When the, and this is the end of, of 35, on page 421. When therefore they have agreed among themselves about the things foretold in the Scriptures, then shall they be also confuted by us. For erroneous as their views are, yet for the present they refute themselves by their not having the same thoughts about the same subjects. But we, following as our teacher, one only, and him the only true God, and having his sayings for the rule of truth, say all of us 
always the same words about the same things, knowing but one God, the maker of the universe, him who sent the prophets, who brought the people out of the land of Egypt, who in the last times revealed his son to confound the unbelievers and demand the fruit of righteousness. What a great summary to this whole section. It really is. It really is. And it's really, um, well, this whole era, what we're reading today, St. Irenaeus is, is praising uh, one of the important aspects of revelation is, is its rationality. Um, that it's accessible. I mean, he talks about it, it being public. And by that, he means that um, a fair-minded person using his God-given reason can make sense of what what the scriptures teach. And he's saying, you know, the problem with having any kind of a conversation with the Gnostics is they're totally all over the board. And whenever they don't want to have a conversation with you, they kind of go and hide in their cone of silence. Um you know, it, it makes me, yeah. I'm cautious here because I, I appreciate, uh, going back to that documentary we watched, I appreciate yeah. what the evangelical Protestant writer and presenter did in that doc, documentary to point out the flaws of the emerging church movement. But I would also stand back and say to him directly, because he will talk about evangelicalism today, Protestant evangelicalism today. Well, the truth is, there's no one view that represents Protestant evangelicalism today. There isn't. It isn't one. And that's why he says, but we following as our teacher, one only, and him, the only true God, and having his sayings for the rule of faith. I say all of us always the same words about the same things. So in the context of Irenaeus, we've got to be careful. We want to pull that out yeah. and, and say that what he's talking about here is the Bible alone. Of course not, because when you look at the context of Irenaeus's entire work, he's talking about the, the apostolic rule of faith that has been passed on from Christ to his apostles that is being preserved in the church. And as he'll say, we need to flee to the church because we know that. He's not saying that that apostolic faith might not be able to be heard somewhere else, but he's saying for sure, if you want, you know you're on the same path, you flee to the church because that's why it was established, to preserve that apostolic truth. That's right and in the think, middle of this argument. I'm sorry. And think of what um, all of these early Christian um, missionaries and bishops were up to bringing new people into the church and at baptism these people learned yeah. the rule of faith the baptismal creed um, so everybody was on the same page I mean it was a summary of an essential summary of what, what the church believes and yeah. they didn't have they don't have that in Gnosticism yeah, I think if you go, uh, if you look in the index of the book, um, Air Against Heresies, and look up Rule of Truth, 
you'll see the other many references throughout his work where he uses that phrase, and you'll see that it's the creed, yeah, which we would call really the apostolic creed. Mm-hmm. Uh, is basically what he's referring to. This is long before Nicaea in, in Constantinople, so that's not what we say every Sunday in the Catholic Mass. It's the Apostles' Creed, uh, uh, which is basically the baptismal formula, as you said. All right, Monsignor, chapter 36, if you would, because I want to make sure we get to 37 today. Um, would, right. you, would you go ahead and summarize 36 for us? Well, I, you probably do a much better job than I on this, um, but chapter 36 is um, basically a kind of a little exegetical guide about how Jesus used these parables yeah. and how the, the manner by which Jesus uses these parables um, shows that there is one father overall. There's one uh, son who has come and... And then the and then of course the spirit um, undergirds it all, and so it's basically it's just an argument that these parables speak about the unity of salvation history. It's the same from beginning to end, same God that's managing the whole thing and overseeing it. Um, yeah, you we know. we could go into each of them and talk about, but again, it's just a part of his long argument uh, against Marcion. And his followers and the Valentinians, but there are a few we, quotes in there. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I was going to mention one, but go ahead. Well, um, for example, one. Um, um, if we look on uh, 423, for example. Um, okay. At the bottom there, uh, but but when they believed not, last of all, he sent his own son said our Lord Jesus Christ, whom the evil husbandman slew and cast out of the vineyard. So he's talking about the parable of the vineyard. Remember, they mm-hmm. kill all the first husbandsmen, and and yeah. then they, he sends his son. And then, wherefore the Lord God gave it over, now no longer fenced in, but laid upon open to the whole world, to other husbandmen, rendering their fruits in their seasons, the tower of his choice being everywhere exalted and beautiful, for everywhere is the church. Glorious, and everywhere the winepress dug around, since everywhere are some who receive the Spirit. So, if you will, he, Irenaeus is continuing on the parable. You know, the, the vine, the owner of the vineyard sent all of his husband, and, and, the, and the, the workers kept killing them all. So he sends his son, surely they'll honor my son. And they say, well, if we kill the son, then the vineyard will be ours. So they kill the son. Well, the parable ends there when Christ tells it. Irenaeus continues it on. It continue, yeah, I think that's a really great point. Um, again, it's that incredibly vivid, dynamic sense of salvation history that he has. Yeah. Um, it's all unfolding now. And we're in a, you know, after the coming of Christ, after his first coming, we're in a whole different um set of things, but it's the same God who is directing it all. To other husbandmen, he says. Yeah. Well, that's the apostolic succession. And we're not just that's reading it. that into him. That's the what he says elsewhere. It's the, yeah. it's the successors of the bishops who are carrying on the apostolic deposit of faith. 
rendering the fruits in their season, and then the new tower, the tower of his choice being everywhere exalted and beautiful, for everywhere is the church glorious. So as you said, he, he continues the parable of Christ, understanding salvation history. And if you go down a little bit, and to the Gentiles who were without the vineyard, he hath given fruit as their cultivation. So Irenaeus, again, at the bottom of 423, he carries yeah. on the parable of Christ fulfilled after his resurrection and assumption in the church, and then going beyond, uh, uh, if you will, the original vineyard of Israel to the expanded Israel of the Gentiles. All right. And as you in said— the next page, Go ahead. Yeah, in the next page, um, toward the bottom of the page, um, he takes on the whole question of judgment, too, and shows that there is unity here. Um, thus he announces one and the same Lord— who in Noah's time brought on a on the deluge because of this disobedience of men, and in Lot's time rained fire from heaven because of the many sins of the Sodomites, and at last will bring on the day of judgment because of this same disobedience and of like sins. And in that day, he declares it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for the city and the house, which shall not have received the words of his apostles. Yeah. Very, very dramatic language well, there, I think. Again, we're going to get into this a little bit in 37 yeah. too, but the idea that yeah. um, we've been given more grace now. And so in that sense, we have more culpability. And mm -hmm. so the issue is, um, uh, you know, here's the trajectory, the flood. Sodom and Gomorrah, the judgment, the same God. It's the same steadfast love and mercy, but expectation of obedience. And as he says, then it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for the city and the house which shall not, not have received the words of his apostles. What does he mean by receiving? We're going to see in 37, that means the act of the will. Yes, yes. Do, do we believe and receive the message of the apostles? And if we don't, that's what he's saying. It'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than us because we got the gospel. Yeah, and, and, and in 420, on 425 in the middle there, we're in section 4, he sums that up. Thus as by his coming he gave more grace to such as have believed in him and do his will, so he signified that such as believed him not have a greater punishment in the judgment. So, yep. yeah, making that point, basically, he hammered that point home several times in the in this these two pages. I'm going to go on with that. Yeah. Keep reading. Being okay. equally just over all, that phrase, Irenaeus is talking about God's righteousness being equally just over all, everyone. Everyone. And to whom he gave from them intending to demand more. Jesus said that. To him more is given, more is required. That's our whole generation. That's the whole age of the church. We've been given 
a whole lot more than anybody before Christ was given. And so therefore, more grace, he says. At the end of that paragraph, because by his coming, he poured forth upon mankind a greater largesse of his father's grace. Uh, reminds me of, of Romans 1, where he says the evidence of God is, it's out there, everybody. No one was without excuse. No one was without excuse. We've been given grace to see. The question is, do we see? Now, um, again, there's a lot of other quotes in this section that we can go to. His interpretation of the marriage feast and the marriage garment, it's all in there. If you have the book, I would encourage you to read that all, please. It's all good stuff. But I want us, Monsignor, to jump to 37. And okay. I have a, at least half of the entire chapter 37 highlighted and underlined and annotated. There's so many good things in here. Monsignor, why don't you, if you would, though, give us an overview of it and then jump us into it. I think what we're going to do, Marcus, here is... Um we're going to really get into this one. This is okay. going to be interesting. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, what what Irenaeus is telling us in chapter 37. Um, well, why does he feel the need to emphasize what he is in 37? He, he, th- I, this is the I title think, of, our, of, our, of our episode. It's found in this. Yeah. The ancient law of man's liberty. I think... Um, He's concerned that the Gnostics basically have um, have embraced determinism. Um, that um, basically, you know, you are what you were born to be, um, and you, you know, God help you if you were born from um, the wrong the wrong emanation or eon. Um, what he is arguing here. Is, is just brilliant, I think. It's that, that um, revelation, the gospel, everything is, it's all, it, 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 that law of liberty is also the gift of reason, rationality. And um, I just, I mean, throughout that he created man with free will, um, this ancient law of liberty, um, and even the angels, too, have this free will. And he, he says there, he connects that with the power of reason. Yeah, so me. that's how, how can you be free if you don't, if you're not able to, in a rational way, evaluate the choices before you and choose what is good? The, the, as I looked at it, the overview, and I agree with you, Monsignor, the overview of chapter 37, if you will, to me, the point he's trying to make, which is so important in the history of the church and where we're at today when we look at the confusion in Christendom, is that Scripture alone, and I, I, I'm not making this with a capital S and a, and a capital A alone, but I mean by focusing on Scripture as my sole source of truth, even inspired as it is, can lead to a huge diversity of interpretations. He said that a chapter or two ago, right? 
And mm -hmm. one of the examples of that is how you can take scriptures by overemphasizing one or the other to compromise the very issue of man's responsibility for his choice of eternity. And if dare we think that's only a problem of the Gnostics of the second century, that's exactly the problem that came out of the Protestant Reformation. And as I mentioned earlier, we have Luther's entire book on the bondage of the will and the idea that, and I wish I could do a better job now of summarizing Luther's, I'm trying to remember Luther's arguments, but basically in my interpretation, I did, I'm one that does brought, was brought up Lutheran, that did not believe that Luther's goal was to start a new church or to break away, but to bring authentic renewal, and I, I give him the counter. But out of his own personal struggle of understanding Scripture about our call to be perfect, and he realized his own imperfection and his own inability to become perfect the way he interpreted Scripture, the conclusions he came up with as a result of that pulled him outside of the path of the apostolic teaching in a couple of different ways. And one of those is by saying in the end, even aided by grace, I can't do it. And so the only way I can stand before God is that there's nothing I can do. I can't choose to do anything pleasing to God. And so in the end, Christ's righteousness covers my imperfection. Yeah. So we get the imputed idea imputed righteousness. of righteousness uh -huh. to cover. And, and he talks about total depravity. That's the words that I used when I was a Calvinist preacher. That's part of the five points. Totally depraved, going back to the, to the fall of Adam, completely destroyed our ability to have freedom of the will. We're totally depraved. That's part of the five points of Calvinism. And the idea of... Um, predestination is that if we're saved, we were predestined to be saved from the beginning of the world. And in that sense, we had nothing to do with it whatsoever. And double predestination is the idea that if we're predestined and there's nothing we can do to choose our eternal destiny, then that implies that there are some who were predestined from the beginning of the world to be outside. Yes. Now, there are scriptures behind all of these things. That's the problem. That's what Irenaeus is pointing out. That's the problem, is uh, that we're, these guys taking it in different directions outside of the path of the apostolic deposit that we were given, that the church is preserving and protecting. If you open the Catholic catechism, the, in, turn to the introduction where John Paul begins the catechism, the first words out of John Paul's mouth are, guarding the deposit is the purpose of the church. Guarding the deposit. And Irenaeus is getting to an issue here of that we have, we are called to live in faith and obedience. That's the gospel. Faith and obedience, faith and works. That's James. Faith and works. Luther wants to throw works out and say only faith. 
And he is saying it's because there are those that say it's only works. Well, the problem is that poorly catechized Catholics can sometimes think it's only works. Poorly catechized Catholics think, if I'm doing these things, I'll be saved. I've jumped through these hoops, I'll be saved, whether I believe or not. I mean, they wouldn't say that, but there are a lot of, I think, a lot of Catholics, high church people that think that they're saved through the liturgy, regardless of what's going on inside. And that was the problem in the Old Testament. When he had the prophets had to say, I don't want your sacrifice. I want your heart. Irenaeus talks about that over and over. It's faith and obedience. Faith lived out in love are both important. And that's what this chapter is about, is that we have been given freedom in both. First he talks about works, and then he talks about faith. And both of those are within our response to grace, and he emphasizes that God does not force us to follow him or to do his will. He commands us. He gives us the grace, but it's up to us to freely respond. And Irenaeus says, if we don't, it's the two ways, folks. It's it's the same rule of the two ways. You either follow him by grace in faith and obedience, or if you don't, comes the judgment. That's scripture. That's Irenaeus. I like the way he summarized, basically his thesis, he puts very clearly at the bottom of page 431, section two. I'm going to read this this sentence. If some are by nature born bad and others good, neither are these praised for being good, since they were framed such, nor the others blamed being so born but because they are all of the same nature and are able to retain and to do what is good and able, on the contrary, to reject it and do it not, justly even among men who are well-governed and much more with God are the ones praised and meet, wit- and meet witness born unto them of their general choice of what is good and perseverance in it, the others blamed, and due punishment is set on them for rejecting what is right and good. So that's kind of his anthropology. We're all of one nature. Human beings are all of one nature, and we have um, this freedom of the will. Um, otherwise, Otherwise, he's pointing out the Gnostics basically are saying that some people are of a different nature than others, the ones that are... Um, Predestined may not be the right word I want, but those that are yep. in in the good, who have a good father, and then those who have a bad father, you know, if a, the ones that are spiritual and the ones that are material. If a person is predestined from the beginning of time to spend eternity in hell, well, why? Why are they culpable of anything? That's right. And yeah. those those that defend those ideas would argue, well, God's predestination is another way, a flip side of his foreknowledge. So if he predestined us at the beginning of the world to be spent eternity in hell, it's because he knew at the beginning of the world that that's what we were going to... What's like? I mean, it's mumbly talk. And those of them, even here, as I look through my previous uh, way of understanding this as a Calvinist, would argue, well, well you're arguing works righteousness. 
And and to me, those are smoke screens now. So many of the arguments over righteousness and justification and sanctification and all these things that divide Christians one from another, to me, are, are the smoke screens that Irenaeus warned about that don't get divided over words. You know, what came first, grace or my act to reach out to that poor person? And we could spend our time arguing over who's acted first, God or me, and miss the point that what's important is helping that poor person. That's what's important. What came first, my, my faith in Christ or my obedience? Well, theologically, I would say it's grace. Okay, of course it was. But we, we can spend so much time arguing over these things, be divided over them and throwing rocks at each other, and we miss a point that we're called to love. That's what's important, is doing it. And that's what he's talking about, freedom of responding. We've been given that, as, and everyone has that nature and that freedom to respond. Everyone does. You know, I um, in chapter 37, I couldn't help but think about um, St. Irenaeus, as he's writing this, he he's writing this before one of the great controversies of the church happens. Not too much further down the road. By the by, the end of the fourth century, um, probably we begin with Saint Ambrose in Milan. He's teaching that we must never think that we can earn our salvation. Um, it's not automatic or mechanical, and, and of course that led to you know Saint Augustine's great work on uh, thinking on grace and free will, but. I was thinking about um, this this very interesting British monk. Um, his name was Pelagius, and he's showing up in Rome in the later fourth century, and, and he's basically a street preacher doing doing um, uh, you know he's preaching at, at, to, to crowds and encouraging them. Basically, to do um, to, ta- to to do good works, yeah. <laughs> and and when that uh, that controversy between the Pelagians and and Augustine broke out, what we have from the Pelagians is basically they're saying we're not teaching something new. This is what we've been given from the earlier fathers in the church. So that's one of the most fascinating episodes yeah. in the in patristic theology is um, Pelagius in some ways has an argument that he's closer to these second century fathers than Augustine is. Yeah, in fact, word for word, much of what Pelagius supposedly said was word for word what Anthony of the Desert wrote as we hear through Athanasius's biography of... So it it wasn't... um, It became a a theological debate later during the time of Augustine. It's kind of a chicken and egg issue. What do you emphasize? And do our works merit salvation? Mm -hmm. And is there anything I can do towards my salvation? And so you get caught up in this battle of words over God's sovereignty and man's freedom of the will. Which is it? Is it 90-10? 
Is it 80-20? Is it 60-40? You know what? God's sovereignty, man's freedom. And of course, some groups, the Calvinists in some way, it's 100% God's sovereignty and zero man's freedom. And some would say that Pelagius was the other way around, that it was 100% man's freedom to, to, to work and uh, and God then responded. You know that that's supposedly what. You know, there's arguments on whether Pelagius ever said any of that or not. But but the point is, Irenaeus isn't yet in that debate. He's, no, he's not in it. He's just he's just teaching scripture, which means we have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, faith, and we are free to believe. If we don't believe, it's our choice. Because what, you know, down the way, what St. Augustine's going to argue is that because of the fall, um, Satan basically had the opportunity to change the firmware in the human soul. <laughs> so the, uh, the human soul can no longer freely choose um, what it's always going to do it from a self-centered point of view. St. Augustine came up with the whole concept of concupiscence, um, self-love, the love for desi- uh, the desire for pleasure and all that sort of thing. Um, whereas, you know, I think St. Irenaeus, if he would have had a conversation with St. Augustine, he would have wanted to bring out that, um, that this is going to be a problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, because we have to, if, if human responsibility, if we're going to be responsible for our actions, and if we choose good in a praiseworthy way, that has to come from an, an, an act of the freedom of the will. He's he's saying so. Yeah, we're again, again. This is my view, uh, and where I've come from in my reading of this is that one of the unfortunate things that happened in the history of the church as the devil did everything possible to destroy the gospel and destroy the spread of the gospel was to get the leadership of the church fighting one another over the meaning of words. And it doesn't mean that what came out of that wasn't of great value. Newman would write a whole book on how that developed in our understanding of the faith. But often when you look at the history of it, not only did it lead to divisions in the church and and sometimes good men of goodwill fighting one another, uh, even men being put to the stake over over issues that over. when it really comes down to it, the, the battle between Augustine and Pelagius, we don't want to uh, I don't want to undercut the significance of the conclusions of the church. But we're really talking about things that we can't know as human beings. We really can't. It's a mystery. We're, ta- we're talking about God and what he's doing, and we'll mm-hmm. know, and we trust the church on that because we, it was the end of a battle. So we, we, we recognize when we say every Sunday in the creed, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. Those were the, the end results of long debates. And we accept those as inspired by the Holy Spirit. But Irenaeus would say, guys, it's too bad from the very beginning. You just said, guys, we're not going there because it's going to lead to battles. It's going to lead to divisions. It's going to lead to to this day. Here we are in the 21st century. Christians are divided over these issues. Yeah. 
The very issues he's talking about. But he is saying here, the very beginning, we have the freedom and the responsibility to, number one, believe in Jesus Christ. And number two, live that out in love. And we have the freedom to do it. And we'll be responsible for that at the very end, at the bottom of page 432. He summarizes, for all these sayings set forth the free will of man. He's talking about the parables and um, a number of things that our Lord said. And how God is a counselor to us, exhorting us to submit to him and turning us aside from disobeying him, but not using any compulsion. That's important, right, Monsignor? He's exhorting us. He's calling us to act in our free will, but he's not using any compulsion. That emphasizes the freedom, complete freedom of our will. And that also implies that our Lord Jesus believed that his hearers could respond. Okay, and he goes on to talk about that. Uh, yeah, then, yeah, because in section four, I mean, that's kind of a complicated section in some ways, but yeah. what I summed up that is that, you know, he repeats that God does not use compulsion with us. Yeah. Uh, he created us, us with free will, and that free will is is basically the image of God. It's part of the image of God that is impressed upon us. Um, so it's very important that we do have free will um, if we're going to, you know. Yeah, he, he goes on and yeah. he, he uses in section four, where before he was talking about what our Lord was teaching. Now he's saying this is confirmed in the teachings of Paul and Peter. Uh-huh. And that's... Section 4, then he ends up, if therefore it were not in us to do these things or not to do them, what cause had the apostle and long before him the Lord himself to give counsel that one should do some things and abstain from some other? But because man from the beginning has his determination free and God in whose likeness he is made, hath free determination. In every instance, advice is given him to retain that good thing which is perfected by obedience towards God. So there, yeah, that was the passage I underlined. That's where he's saying that that freedom that we're given is part of the image of God that has been impressed on us. So that, um, that whole section of 37 chapters, uh, sections one through four, was about freedom of the will to Mm -hmm. choose to do what is right, to choose to do works of goodness, to choose to do works of charity, to choose to to obey the Ten Commandments. We have the freedom and we have the responsibility and we will be held accountable for that, period. Now, whether we're responding to grace or not is another issue. We believe that. But what's important is our obedience, and God's not going to make us do it. It's freedom. Then in sections 5 through the end of chapter yeah. 37, it's about faith. 
faith. And isn't that an interesting point? Because now he's 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 saying that. Well, at the, at the bottom of page uh, four thirty three, uh, in section five. Um, not only in works, but also in faith, the Lord hath kept man's choice free and independent. And then going down a couple of sentences, and all such places show that man is in his own power concerning faith. I found that one challenging because I, I was taught, you know, in my pastoral work that faith is a gift and sometimes people yearn for it and strive for it, but they have to ask for it. Um, and here he seems to suggest that faith is not unlike works, that it's something that you choose and you grow into. And again, I would argue, given the whole context of Scripture as well as his, is that he's not denying that the source of faith is grace. True. What he's arguing is that God does not, as you go up above, God using no compunction towards him. He does not force us to believe. To me, that's taking what our Lord and the and the New Testament writers take seriously. If you confess with your lips that God raised him from the dead and you believe in your heart, if you confess with your lips and you believe, you will be saved. Now, he's he uses the word if. If. That's in Romans 10. It implies freedom of the will to respond to grace. He's talking about the earlier on is about the grace has been mm -hmm. given to us in this age. He talked about that. Um, you know that oh, uh, where is that? Um it's back in the previous chapter. It won't go. Be. Thus, as by his coming, he gave more grace to such as have believed him and do his will. So he signified that such as believed him not have a greater punishment. So it's this, this partnership with grace. The faith comes from grace, but we have to respond and believe, and we're given more grace. Uh, in uh, John chapter 1, it talks about grace upon grace. We see that also in Paul's letters, grace upon grace. It's his journey of faith. Um, top of page 434. On this principle, then, the Lord at once declaring his own goodness, implying that man is in the hand of his own will and his own power. Again, Irenaeus emphasizing our freedom to respond, and we are called to respond. I, you know, in sec section six, can I just read a few? Please. I'm going to skip over a couple of these, but... Uh, toward the middle of the page there, um, on page 434, because they were made reasonable with faculties to examine and to judge and not um, like irrational or inanimate things which can do not of their own will but are drawn toward good by necessity and force, who have only one thought and only one way. These are not, I say, made unchangeable and without judgment so as not to be capable of being anything but what they were made. In other words, he's arguing for freedom here. And then a couple of sentences down, thus there would be no energy in their goodness, they being what they are rather by nature than by will, 
and having good of itself, not by choice, and consequently not realizing so much as this, that what is good is fair and not enjoying it. For what enjoyment is there of good in those who know it not? I, basically, he's saying, you know, he's saying there's no energy in the moral life if if you're just if if it's determined ahead of time. Yeah, and that's why I said I wondered if if Luther or Calvin read this at all or just totally ignored this early witness. I know, I know. It's fascinating, isn't it? Well, I was just thinking, you know, as an in the 39 articles as an Anglican, we emphasized, um, we wanted to basically, it basically was Calvinism, but um, but there had to be fruit. The fruit was a sort of a, a, basically it was a kind of an external proof that grace was really operative in the soul. Um, so good works were turned into fruit, but... Um, you know, Monsignor, I'm going to have a stop there. Surely. We'll stop at the end of 6. We'll pick up at 7 because 7 uh, moves to a slightly different topic. It talks about the importance of suffering and of struggle. Yeah. That's a slightly different topic than what we were just talking about. And... Um, I could hear, as we close, I'm going to ask you to close with prayer in a moment, Monsignor, but I, as, I, as I listen to what we're saying, I could imagine even as I would have responded to this, is that what Irenaeus, I think, is clearly saying is different than what many non-Catholic Christians believe deeply in their soul today. Some completely deny the freedom of the will and give everything to the sovereignty of God, even to the extent of arguing that there's not a thing we do that is free, which to me is absolutely absurd. But anyway, they, they, they want to argue that. Or they might say limited freedom. Everything we did was predestined because they, they take scriptures to mean it that way. And so what they would argue is that they, by hearing what Irenaeus, they would say, well, then Irenaeus must have been wrong. And what I would like to challenge them to think is what you're doing is you're taking your tradition. You're not taking Scripture alone. You're taking your tradition that has interpreted Scripture as the judge of Irenaeus, who is continuing on the apostolic tradition in the earliest days of the church. We're not arguing that Irenaeus is infallible. He could be wrong. But he is giving a witness to the earliest interpretation of the apostolic deposit concerning the freedom of the man, and he's using Scripture. It's based on Scripture. He's not based on some other tradition. It's based on Scripture. And he's, if we'd had time, we'd gone through all the different Scriptures that he's basing it on, the, writing, the speak, teachings of Christ and then the writings of Paul and Peter. And he's basing this that we have been challenged. And, and we, preachers do that all the time. If I, dare I mention Billy Graham? who would give his great crusade to a, in a huge football stadium, calling people to come forward and surrender to Jesus Christ, to put their faith in Jesus Christ, and then to live holy lives. That's what Irenaeus is saying, that we have the freedom to do that. You have the freedom to get out of that 
that pew in that football stadium and come down and get on your knees and surrender to Jesus Christ. Freedom of the will to choose to believe. We know it came from grace, but you still have the responsibility to choose to believe in Jesus Christ. If you and I died tonight, we stood before God. We can't say, well, you didn't give me the grace or you didn't choose me. No, it's did, God will say, did you choose me? I like the way you put the words, um, you added the word responsibility to faith like this. I, Marcus, um, as a priest, just as a human being, I guess, when I look around my generation and see how many people have lost their faith. Um, which, you know, which remember Pope Benedict said, that's our problem today is a long lack of faith. Yeah. And what, you know, the think of how sometimes the church responds with the attitude, um, oh, that's so sad. You know, obviously there were just circumstances in their life that crushed them and we shouldn't hold them accountable for that. And we just should pray that they can find their way back. I think St. Irenaeus would say, our faith is our responsibility to nurture and to grow. And, um, and maybe some of these people that are, are, have given up the faith, have lost their faith, um, maybe sometimes a kick in the butt, um, proverbially speaking, uh, um, is more helpful than just kind of this sort of, oh, poor guy approach. Yeah. I can't think of anything more terrifying that as we get older, yeah, to, kind of walk, to walk away from, from the faith. It's, it is terrifying. And it's like a, spending your whole life preparing to run a marathon, 26-mile marathon. And then you get into this thing, and at first you're doing great. You're doing great. Looking great, you know, you're taking the water and you're running, you're keeping up with everybody, you're doing great. It gets tougher and tougher and tougher and tougher and tougher, though. And the, the sufferings along the way are that you get through are to strengthen you for the big suffering that's coming at the, toward the end. And if we spend our time using all kinds of things to lessen the suffering along the way, when we hit the big suffering, we won't have the s spiritual strength to face the big battles towards the end, the 22nd mile, the 23rd mile, the 24th mile. And you get just at the end, you say, I've had it, I'm tired. When you're just almost there. That's why Lou Holst should have been a priest, <laughs> <laughs> right? Because <laughs> he could he could kick him. <laughs> yep, and that's what he does. That's what he. But 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 really, that's the point, guys. Especially, but you know, uh, we're going to get into to section seven of thirty-seven, in which he talks about suffering and struggle and the value of that. Just after he talked about our freedom, he kind of says it's not going to be easy. And a choice is not a one-time thing. It's a lifelong choosing. Or as Christ used the word, abiding in him, continuing, remaining. Or as John used in Revelation chapter 2, conquering to him who conquers. And that involves a choice of responding to grace. Monsignor, would you close with, with prayer, if you yeah. would? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that we will be true 
to the image that you created in us and take responsibility for um, the truth and the faith that we're asked to use in response to your goodness to us. We pray that you will bless us and thank you for St. Irenaeus and, uh, and help us to um, understand how extraordinary this, um, this section is in terms of our life today. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Thank okay. you, Monsignor. Thank you very much. And I'll thank all of you for joining us on this episode of Deep in History. Uh, we look forward to being with you again next week.